Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Well, it was September of 2006, and um, I think there's a picture of me back then somewhere up there. You can see the hair. It was a whole thing. Um, but I had just gone off to college, and it was a couple months into my time there because I went early in the summer to spend some time with the soccer team preparing for our upcoming season. And though I've got a smile here, and it's sort of a happy moment, actually, with my parents and my mom's parents as well, um, that fall was a very unhappy season for me. And in fact, the longer that I spent down in Omaha, it seemed like the more and more the things that I wanted and desired out of going there were not materializing. And so, as I tried my hardest, as I worked my best, I seemingly could not get the things that were most precious to me in life at that time. As I literally slaved myself away as a, a student athlete, I got no breakthrough whatsoever, no playtime. I had relationships that were struggling on the sides, and I didn't know how the academics piece was going to work out. I mean, it's like your first round, and like you haven't had midterms yet. And so the things are going sort of down and south. And it was at that point that I started to realize really where I was placed on campus and where I was placed in my own story. Meaning I stayed in this dorm that was at the bottom of campus. And there was um, a hill upon campus that sort of became the center of campus, the crest overlooking most of the lower part of the school. And as I realized, the place where I stayed and lived became the place where my soul was actually going, which was the bottom. It was going darker, and it was going downward, and I didn't know what to do. So frustrated that I could not have my way, could not achieve the things that I desired, the things I worshipped. Yes, that's the language of worship, to serve, to give, to love, to pour yourself out to, had not blessed me in return. And so, I remember this one night, perhaps one of the darkest, I made my way up to the middle of campus into this area of gardens. It was actually after a game in which I, by my own recollection, had done incredibly poor. And, uh, and I made my way up to this garden with trees, no lights, but a few lamps around. And it embodied the place I was in my own mind and in my own soul. And it was there in that darkness that the compassion of God began to make sense to me. It was there at the end of my rope that the compassion of God started to click. I not only understood God's mercy and compassion towards me, but I understood my need for it in a way that I never had because my own selfishness, my own wanting of my own achievement and success, my own sin became so clear to me and the darkness of it became so overwhelming to me that I needed a light to break through. And it was the compassion of God that found me there. Little did I know 
as a mentor would take me to that same place during the daytime months later and walk me beyond the trees, through the bushes, around the shed to see the top of the hill overlooking the entirety of campus, that my dark spot about my selfish achievement would someday, by the Lord's compassion, move me to a spot of frequenting that place to care and to pray and to intercede for the campus as a whole. The, the compassion of God had a widening effect on my own sight and scope. And Jonah is actually encountering a similar moment. Focused on himself, only seeing what works for him and for his people. The compassion of God is going to widen his frame of concern for others, but not without a bit of wrestling with God. So here it is this morning. I have three simple points that I want us to work through. And the passage, I think, breaks down into those three sections fairly neatly. And they are Jonah's critique. He's critiquing God's compassion. Jonah's complaint He's complaining about the way God works in the world. And then Jonah's coldness. So let's go there. Um, let's start with Jonah's critique. Jonah's critique. This is verse 1 of chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. If you're just joining us, Jonah got asked by God to go to Nineveh and to share a message with them. And Jonah said, no, 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 I'm not going. And so he runs the other way, 2,500 miles away from his assignment. Like, see ya, going that way. And Jonah gets found by God, even though he's trying to flee from God. He realizes he can't escape the presence of God, but even in his running away, God finds him and begins to work on him, even to the point where he throws this storm over the sailors that are taking him away from God's call. And then the sailors, because they've got nothing to do, realize they must hurl Jonah overboard. And Jonah flies overboard and sinks down, down, down into darkness, similar to where I was. And a fish eats him. A fish eats him. Now, some would say a whale. It doesn't really say, but I've told you before, it's something bigger than a muskie, all right? It's, it's a large fish, eats Jonah, and spits him out. Spits him out back onto the beach. And Jonah then hears again the word from the Lord, go to Nineveh, and he does. But only to go and to proclaim a message of judgment, saying in 40 days, God's going to destroy all this. And the people hear him. And they turn in mass, leaving their evil ways, turning away from the violence, which they were an incredibly brutal and violent people, and then seeking God. Jonah can't believe it. He thought, if I'm going to go, at least I'm going to go, and then God's going to rain down destruction on these people who are my enemy. But the exact opposite happens. Jonah experiences Nineveh's widespread, widespread repentance and this spiritual revival, if you will. And the very fact of it is evil to Jonah. This is what um, verse 1 says. It, was, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. It literally reads, it was evil, evil to Jonah. 
that they had turned to the Lord and he was angry. And so God initiates with Jonah. He goes, hey, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? A sincere question, a searching question. And I don't know if you've ever been in a fight. My guess is you have um, with someone who's from Minnesota. And the majority of people who are from Minnesota have this way of uh, when they get in a fight, they kind of just sort of like walk away. Or they do that passive aggressive thing that we kind of know so well, right? But, but Jonah, God comes and says, hey, do you do well to be angry? And he's like, uh-uh. He didn't even respond. He leaves the city, walks out, makes himself a little booth, hoping that God will turn this story around. What is Jonah's critique? I mean, his critique is how could God not destroy these people? How could God not rain down just anger upon these people? They have been the ones who have ravaged the villages of Israel. The northern tribes have been, they have been tortured by the Ninevites. Jonah has a sense of justice knowing the harm that Nineveh has caused his people. And he says, God, how could you not repay them what is their due? And the compassion of God shown to the Ninevites is so evil to Jonah. This phrase, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting in disaster, is the core of what the Old Testament and the New Testament, which echoes it, teaches about what God is like. You see it seven times throughout the Old Testament in very different circumstances where God reveals to his people, this is how I work. This is my nature. This is my character. And that kind of God is very displeasing to Jonah. If you, if you look, let's just explore a little bit of what God is like. Jonah says he would rather die than live in the world of a God who operates this way. But God is merciful. Merciful. This is a word that literally means to give someone what they don't deserve. The example within the Old Testament law is that if somebody gives a pledge for something, say they maybe give a piece of property, perhaps they're even their own clothing or their cloak, and they can't repay you, you should have mercy upon them by the end of the day so that they don't have to sleep without a covering, so that they don't get cold at night. Do they deserve for you to give the pledge back? No. But because you're merciful and you're compassionate, you should give it to them anyway. He goes on to say, the Lord is merciful and gracious. This word gracious is often translated compassionate. Maybe it is in your translation that you have before you if you have a Bible in your hand. It is a word that means soft, almost womb-like. It is a word that conveys nurturing. It's different than empathy. Empathy has a way of driving at feelings. It even literally means to sort of feel in or to feel the same as someone else. But compassion, on the other hand, has more distance to it and more power to it. Compassion is not saying that God feels the exact same as us. God does not feel the same as Jonah in this moment. But he has compassion upon him, meaning he is willing to suffer with Jonah 
as Jonah goes through. He has not left Jonah, but he is distinct from Jonah, and yet he cares deeply for Jonah. God does not feel the same as Jonah, but he feels for Jonah. This kind of powerful compassion. Not only is God compassionate, God is slow to anger. Meaning he has a long, long wick. He is patient, enduring, forbearing. Proverbs says it like this, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit better than him who takes a city. The idea is that being able to control or to restrain your anger is worth more than any kind of physical strength or power. This kind of ability to delay and to forbear, to be patient with others is significant. But not only slow to anger, God is abounding in steadfast love. This is the Hebrew word for chesed. But it's even a stronger sort of add-on to that word here in this sentence. It's an unrelenting, a loyal, a faithful, a never giving up, a never stopping kind of love, even in the midst of unfaithfulness. The best example in the Old Testament is this prophet named Hosea, whom God instructed to marry, let's call her a wayward woman who time after time, the woman completely leaves her husband, hurting him badly. But then Hosea remains faithful, pursuing her, loving her, nonetheless. This undying kind of love. But not only is God steadfast in love, the point of Jonah's critique is that God is relenting from disaster meaning that there is something about the nature of God that delights in compassion rather than delights in destruction. Delights in compassion rather than construction, destruction. And what you see here, I think the point that Jonah displays really clearly is that the compassion of God is secure enough to handle any critique that you might throw at it. Jonah is literally the prophet of God yelling at God, critiquing the very nature of God. And if you've ever been in a spot where you're like, I don't get God, I don't like God, I've got all these issues with God, I would like to have a word with God, I would like to critique this thing, I have seen something in God that I don't like, welcome to the Bible. Welcome to our church. This is what's happened. God's brought together a people who can actually wrestle with these things because in the scriptures, people have wrestled with these things. Jonah is critiquing the very essence of God in his compassion. He says, I've had enough of you, God. God is so secure in his character and his compassion that he can welcome critique and begin to deal with us. Here's what Jonah can't handle. Jonah can't handle this as God's final response. And in fact, he has a little bit of a case. If you look at the other passages that use this statement, right? God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. There's one actually in Exodus chapter 34, the first time that God reveals, hey, this is what I'm like. And he ends the back of that statement saying, but I will not let the guilty go. 
I will visit the iniquity, the transgression, the injustice of people upon them. Jonah is saying, hey, hey, what happened to that? Like if there's ever a case where you come through and you lay the gavel down in justice, this is it. How can you relent, God? Jonah can't handle that. And he's got good reason to. Um, a brilliant writer in our time is um, Miroslav Volf. He's written a work called Exclusion and Embrace. Um, and his own story, especially um, coming from Croatia, um, understanding incredibly violent places and much conflict, he has a view to injustice and to judgment that I think we would benefit from as Americans. Listen to what he says. He says, One could object that it's not worthy of God to wield the sword. Is God not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love? A counter-question could go something like this. Is it, is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what's compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity. He goes on to say, my thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance, which will be unpopular in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and mothers have had their throats slit. And you point to them and you say, we should not retaliate. Why not? I say, the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent. The idea will invariably die if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. This is Jonah's point. He feels God is not making an end to the violence and therefore is not worthy of his worship no more. And you know what? Miroslav is right. And in some ways, Jonah is right. Because if you look at the biblical history, and if you look at what happened to the people of Nineveh, you would see that though their incredible repentance is noteworthy, that just within the span of a generation or two, three for sure, the entirety of the society had degenerated again into a violent superpower, taking by conquest any and all who would not submit to their rule. And so Jonah laments because he sees within the people of Nineveh a way, a culture, even a structure of violence that will not be undone just because of a revival weekend. Nineveh 
he believes is like a seed planted among weeds. And the word of God's truth will be choked out by the weeds and will die out. He sees in Nineveh this kind of culture that will not shift. There's a chance it would, but history showed that it didn't. In fact, history showed that even in this moment of incredible revival where Ninevites turn in their heart to God, and I believe in the kingdom, people from Nineveh in this time will greet you and I and speak of the compassion of God. But Jonah knows, as one of my favorite writers right now says, that you may have Jesus in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. And the ways of Nineveh stayed. And he knew Israel would pay for it. So listen. Let's not slam revivals. They have a place and a time. And in fact, I think there was meaningful work done by the Lord here. Like, and if we want to rent out U.S. Bank Stadium and gather as many people as we can and give them a message of salvation and of judgment, because that's here in Jonah 2, we should do that. And God, by his great compassion, can pierce through hearts and make life change happen and can spur incredible spiritual renewal. But friends, for us right here as a church, that's not our call. That's not our call. And in fact, I know some of you sitting here this morning have already begun to do some of the very hard, long, painstaking work of trying to reform and reshape family histories, structures, cultures, so that the patterns of a previous people might not be passed down to you and to your children if you have them. And literally, I pray for you with tears in my eyes, knowing how difficult that work is such that your children might know more of the compassionate love of God than you did. That's the kind of deep change possible because of the Lord. But it's the kind of change that Nineveh never saw. The compassion of God is secure enough to welcome critique. And it is also strong enough to weather complaint. Strong enough to weather complaint. Look at verse five. Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. He said, God, I'm giving you the stone wall. Silent treatment. I go this way. I'm gonna make myself a little, little hut. And he goes, and God doesn't leave him alone. We're going to see that. Day number one. Day number one of Jonah's fitting, hoping that the father might change his mind. And Jonah goes, and he sits under the shade, and God, verse 6, appointed a plant that it should come up over Jonah, and that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Funny, discomfort is the same word as evil and disaster earlier in the passage. So literally, God saves the Ninevites from disaster, and God saves Jonah from his discomfort. 
It is the exact same language pointing out the parallel between God's compassion upon Jonah and the compassion that he has towards the Ninevites. Somehow God can have compassion for both. But Jonah gets saved from his discomfort. And he's exceedingly glad. He's like, this is great. Like, look at this shade I've got. I'm okay out here. And then nightfall comes, day two comes about, and God appoints a worm. And it attacks the plant so that it withers. <laughs> Notice how God appointed the plant to grow, and then God appointed the worm to go and eat the plant, and it withers. And I don't know what Jonah does on day two. He probably pouts. That's, what, that's a good guess. Um, but he pouts for day two, and then, you know, nightfall comes, and day three, here we go. We're day three outside the city. I don't know what that is in terms of the 40 days Jonah said it would take for God to sort of rain down the judgment. But he's sitting there, and he's holding out hope. God's going to come to my side. Like, I'm going to win the argument. My fit will work. Day three happens. When the sun arose, God appointed, there's that word again, somehow God's doing all these things, must be in control. Um, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And then he asked that he might die again. Take my life. I don't want to live anymore in your world, compassionate God. But now, you notice that God has provoked Jonah to speak again. The silent treatment is over. Maybe his anger has boiled up enough that he can't quite remain silent anymore. And so Jonah says, no, I want to die. It's better for me to die than to live. And God presses again. Do you do well to be angry for the plant, he adds this time. Sort of tongue-in-cheek, I think. For the plant. Do you see what God's doing? God is asserting a correct view of things. He's doing all of these things to help Jonah see God as the creator and Jonah as the creature. God's the one who appointed Jonah to go somewhere. And God has appointed a plant and appointed a worm, appointed a fish. He is the one in charge of all of this creation that Jonah as a creature is living within. And even the circumstances surrounding what's going on, God is speaking and communicating to Jonah, finally getting him to the point where Jonah can say, I'm going to speak to you again. Let's do this. Let's hash this out. And God says, do you, well to be, do, you do well to be angry for the plant? God has appointed these things. The word can also mean provided these things. Given them to Jonah. But Jonah doesn't want a giving God. Jonah wants a taking God. Jonah says, take my life. Jonah wants him to take the Ninevites' lives. There's something about the very nature of a God of compassion that Jonah doesn't get. And it is that in the very heart of God, he is incredibly giving. He does not delight to take life, but in fact, he has given life to you and to me and to our world, despite whether we deserve it or not. God is using Jonah's complaint and his circumstances to shape him into a true prophet. 
And even in this moment, Jonah's life speaks. If you think about it, this idea of giving rather than taking is in some ways a great bumper sticker, but it is very hard to do. And in fact, the very waters of our society as they were flow downstream a different direction than giving. Perhaps you could say that we love giving so long as it benefits or blesses us, so long as it makes us feel good about ourselves, but taking for yourself is the expectation of our society as a whole. We, if we are to grow in the likeness of God, swim the opposite direction, upstream. But God is helping Jonah learn to swim that way. God is helping Jonah learn to give himself away, even though he does not want to. He doesn't want to give his ministry away to the Ninevites. He does not want to give his heart away in terms of compassion. But God is very different than Jonah. And what you can see here is Jonah has been taken on an adventure. He's been taken on a journey, as it were. And he's learning to swim the opposite direction. I don't know if you've ever been in like a river or been like whitewater rafting. Um, I've been before. It's actually a lot of fun, semi-dangerous, but lots of fun. Um, and I, I went actually with Laura once when we were young. And um, we, we got to this spot in the river where like it kind of calms down well, like so that you can actually get out of the raft. And I remember at once, like, floating out of the raft, and, but getting a little bit away from it, and sort of having that moment of, like, oh, crap. Like, I'm in the, I'm in the rapids. Like, if I get too far away from this thing, like, what, you know, it's like, kind of like, I start swimming, and luckily, like, the raft is going the same direction as the stream, and, you know, I was able to catch up to the raft. But imagine if, like, the stream's taking me the other way, and I've got to swim my way up the current back to get onto the raft. That's what giving is like in our culture. Like you've got to work your way back to the raft. And, and the crazy thing is when you actually get back on the raft, you realize the adventure that it is. A life of overflowing in generosity towards others is a crazy adventure. And it's one that God is inviting Jonah to come upon. And it's also it's almost like in that moment, the, the water is splashing on the face of Jonah. And I believe for some of us, like the rapids need to hit us a bit so that we wake up and realize the ride that we are on. And if we do learn to give ourselves to the Lord and to give ourselves meaningfully to others, he will take us on an adventure and on a ride that is far more worth living than if we go the other way. I can assure you from the pages of Jonah that a life of giving is, is always going to be a life of adventure. Where there is promise that God will provide, where there is going to be more exposure of you than you would like, but where there is adventure and a life worth living. The compassion of God is secure enough to welcome critique. It's strong enough to weather the complaints of Jonah. And then last thing, it is sly, smart enough to warm the coldest heart. To warm the coldest heart. Ironically, Jonah is burning. Like the, passage, like the translation is literally, he's burning with fire, with anger. His nostrils are flaring. And if you look, God has a fierce anger towards sin. But Jonah 
modeling the, whole, the anger of God is angry at compassion. He's angry with the Lord. He's angry about the plant. He's angry enough to die. And his anger burns towards an incredibly evil people. And in that way, it actually mirrors the anger of God. But Jonah has an inability to hold together his anger and compassion. But God has that ability to hold together both anger and mercy, to hold together both justice and grace. And now having heard Jonah out, like God is challenging him, leading him forward out of the place where he is with an incredible comparison. Let me read it to you. Jonah says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and even there's animals. You see God saying, Jonah, you pity the plant. You didn't make it, I did. But I pity the city, these people. God is saying, I am the creator and I am compassionate and I will maintain justice, but I have relented from disaster because I delight in mercy rather than in judgment. So Jonah, in this final little bit, in some ways goes to counseling. I mean, God is there asking him questions and it's almost like the best counseling session you could have. Like, you don't actually have the answers to the questions the counselor is asking. They leave you pondering things that you weren't thinking about before. Wrestling with truth at a, at a deeper level, understanding reality in a better way than when you walked in. And so God, the great counselor, is helping Jonah see that even though Jonah wants his life taken away, that in a real sense, it, it is better for him to die. In fact, something has to die in Jonah for him to go forward. God is just helping him see that like, not everything Jonah thinks is life is real life. Not everything Jonah believes is life is true life and reality the way that God has made and set up the world. He's dislodging the very selfishness and the self-focus and the ego of Jonah such that Jonah might begin to learn from the compassion of God. Jonah's better understanding God's work in the whole world and then God's work in him as an individual. And listen, in some ways, he's right here again. He's right that he must die, that he wants to die, but it's not the kind of death that he would want. Like, in order for any substantial change to happen in Jonah, something does have to be taken away. And same for you and for me. If there's going to be substantial change in whatever arena, whether that's if you're going to counseling or if you're in a D group, discipleship group, or whether it's here on a Sunday or whether it's with a friend, if you're going to change substantially, there are things in you that will have to die in order for a new life to come about. 
Jonah's whole way of understanding the world, his mental models and maps have to shift, right? His long ingrained habits need to be reworked. His way of viewing the world must change. For Jonah to be transformed, something must die in order for something new to come to life. Listen to the way that James Bruckner, Old Testament scholar and professor, paints the predicament of Jonah. You see here, God takes upon himself the evil of Nineveh. He bears the weight of its violence, the pain of its thousand plundered cities, including Israel. And God chooses to suffer in the place of Nineveh. His tears flow instead of theirs. Someday he, God, may even choose to die. You see, this is the reality of redemption that Jonah can't stomach yet, but he will. He can't hold together his saintliness and Nineveh's, Nineveh's sinfulness. And a compassionate God feels outrageous to him. But he has yet to learn that God has tears weeping over Nineveh, the way that God, even in compassion, is warmed towards Jonah himself. The pursuit of God towards Jonah is the same as the pursuit of God towards Nineveh, and somehow God is able to hold compassion for both of them in his heart. And Jonah is therefore learning to align himself with reality, both the injustice of it and the potential of redemption within it. And until he grasps both of those things, he will in no ways see himself as aligning with God's values and God's kingdom. And he will always be struggling with the calling that God has upon his life. This is the helpful paradigm for discipleship that I've been thinking through lately as some friends have shared with me. If you think about it. Part of what needs to happen is we need to learn reality, and then we can be aligned with God's kingdom. And then only then are we actually freed up to do our calling. And when we don't do the first steps first, we end up struggling in the later steps, like Jonah. But listen, I want you to learn from Jonah's anger this morning. His anger is a lesson to us. So we don't confuse God's love with sentimentality. So we don't confuse his grace with a softness that doesn't have a backbone. So that we grapple with the wrestling that Jonah has and many of us have about the justice of God. Listen to Bruckner again. Jonah invites the reader to consider the radical implications of such a God. It means that evil will endure longer on the earth, for God to, is slow to anger. It means that God's grace, love, and compassion will be extended to the rebellious, the wayward, and even the violent in the world. And Jonah's complaint helps us consider the full burden of believing and serving such a God. It means that the world will be a place of potentially great evil. And precisely because God hopes for salvation of the wicked. This is a complex faith that challenges even this true prophet of God 
and continues to challenge believers to trust God more completely for the future. You see, the implications of God's compassion and of God's judgment are radical. And as Christians, we see them only finding their resolution at the cross. The place where the compassion of God and the place where the justice of God fully meet in one spot. These two held in tension together find their full expression at the very heart of the Christian faith in a God that pays out justice upon Jesus so that he might deal out compassion upon us. You see, God not just chose to suffer in the place of Nineveh, but the gospel helps you see that God chose to suffer in the place of you and to suffer in the place of me. You see, one day King Jesus did choose to die, helping both the compassion and the justice of God find their fullest expression. And he, King Jesus, is secure enough to deal with your critiques. He, King Jesus, the one who died on the cross and the one who rose from the grave as the display of compassion is the one who is strong enough to weather your complaints about the way God works. Jesus is the one who is warm enough to bring to life a cold heart, awakening yours and mine to God's great compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your compassion. Something that often is taken for granted and not given the full treatment of both its radical grace and also its incredible injustice. The way in which you would be slow to anger and patient with us and patient with Nineveh should at times drive us to anger. But we have a welcome place with Jonah wrestling before you, seeking to understand and grasp who you are and how beautifully you work in the world. As a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, you are a God who relents from disaster because you delight in life rather than death. And so help us to see you more clearly Help us to live for you more fully and help us to even make space in our minds and our hearts in our community for meaningful questions like the ones Jonah asks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our family, we're gonna move to response and to do so, we're